Oh, it's good to see you this morning. We are still in the Beatitudes, but we're about to leave. Today is our last Sunday, as far as I know. Now, you never know when part two comes up, but um, as far as I know, we're going to complete the study of the Beatitudes. Uh, Most uh, scholars agree that these last three verses all have the same basic theme, all contain the word persecute, and they all have to do with the same blessing, the same Beatitude. They're not three separate ones, even though they're versed out. Uh, three uh, different verses in our text. So here once again the reading, and then we'll take a look at that last one. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. In this last beatitude, the felicity of this particular beatitude is quite sobering. The particular reward that's mentioned here is that those who are persecuted, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the same thing that was said in the very first one. The poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then there's inheriting the earth and other things that that accrue to the believer. Once again, we'll mention that Christ is speaking to believers If you're not born of the Spirit of God, if you're not a son of God, a child of God already, then this is just not just a moral standard for you to try to achieve. Oh, you can try, but I promise you, you won't be able to. Only those that have been graced by the Spirit of God have any hope of practicing these things. And yet these are, most believe, kind of a setting forth of the ethics, the behavioral patterns, the mindsets the characteristics of the person who inhabits the new heaven and the new earth, those that are in the final manifestation of the kingdom of God. We start living like new creatures, new creation, new heaven and new earth, new people now. In fact, that's what the resurrection of Jesus was all about. He came and brought in the new. The resurrection renews And when Christ was given life by the Spirit of God to his dead body, which lay in the tomb, he was brought forth by the Spirit of God. Each and every one of God's people are brought forth, born of the Spirit of God. And then one day there will be a new heaven, a new earth, wherein righteousness dwells. And it's only those that hunger and thirst for righteousness and are ready for that kingdom when it does come that will be able to enjoy and to participate in it. But alas, we're not there yet. We live in a time of reality, of fulfillment, but we also live in a last day. There is a dying order 
There is an age that is passing away. And we just happen to be living in that moment. In that time when the old is passing away. The new has come. And the Lord is positioning his people and teaching them what they need to know. This particular passage, we'll deal with it more particularly in just a moment as we look at it, is going to talk to us about persecution. And I am delighted every time I look out at our little uh, group on Sunday mornings and see so many young people. So many young people. Why are you amening? You're not young. <laughs> What's wrong with you, Mike? But I know you feel young just like the rest of us do. But there are young people, and I look at the horizon. We've not known persecution in this country, really. Our basic Christian heritage that was given to us by our forebearers in the 1600s and the 1700s, long before this country was ever founded, there was a ethos, an ethic, a worldview that prevailed in the society. There was a consensus there was a common law that came over from the old countries and came to this country. And we've been living under that. And there's been a, a, an era of time in which Christianity was the accepted faith. Even those that weren't believers were willing to look at things the way believers looked at them in terms of the world and how the world was created and how the world operated and what the principles were that God had placed into nature. Most of us that are baby boomers around about that age were raised in a time of indifference when it was a kind of a take it or leave it attitude toward the things of God. The things of God were not expunged from our sight and our memory. We were not canceled. We were not thrown out. We were not bold face rejected, but there was a certain indifference. You could take it or leave it. That's the way our teachers taught us in school. That's the way we functioned in society. We were free to enjoy the wonderful benefits of the Christian faith, but many others, in fact, probably a majority of the population as time went by, were indifferent, but not overtly hostile. Only a few really bad souls, really out of sort, were dyed-in-the-wool, atheist, God-hating, communist, et cetera, et cetera, that everything that God had said, they had listened to Freud and Marx and others to, to uh, uh, Darwin and others to oppose the Christian viewpoint. But now we're in an era, I think, where the page has turned again. No longer is this a Christian dominant worldview in our culture. It's even starting to leave our legal system. It left the schoolhouse a long time ago. The gospel left the church house. And now justice is leaving the courthouse. Because justice is based upon truth. And I want you to listen as I just progress through these few thoughts about this particular beatitude this morning. How often it is said that it is the persecution that comes as a result of the loss of truth the lie, the deception, the wrong data, the wrong syllogism, the wrong presuppositions, the wrong given facts are pressed in upon us. 
And the consequences of those are beginning to bear fruit and we're beginning to be pushed in a particular direction. And right now it is principally verbal. And that's really where it starts. In fact, that's the way Jesus refers to it. He says uh, in the text here that when men uh, say all kinds of evil against you, they utter all kinds of evil. It's, it, it, it's, it's language. They utter it against you falsely on my account. It's when they revile you and they persecute you. That's the stage that is the dominant stage of persecution. It, it may start with just a little ignoring, a little bit of humor, a little bit of ridicule, a little bit of taking lightly the things of God. And you, as a child of God, have to bear that reproach. And it may move. In fact, it usually does. In extreme cases, it will move toward severe persecution and martyrdom. But for the most part, in most cultures... For most of the time, the persecution is a severe verbal persecution. It is, it is the intersocial and interactive, but it's verbal. It's, a, it's the creating of the atmosphere of the, of the taunt and the ridicule, the put down, the cancel, the shut up, silence. That's where the persecution rests. Now, Jesus didn't leave us without some idea of where we are in this matter. And uh, let me read a couple of passages for you. Right in my Bible, it's all nothing but red letters. <laughs> that means it's the words of Jesus. This is Jesus speaking shortly before the crucifixion uh, to his disciples. And I'm right in the middle of a big passage here, but let me pick up with these pertinent verses. But before all this... They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogue and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of you adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you will be put to death. You will be hated by all for my namesake, or as our text says, on my account. But not a hair of your head will perish, and listen to this. this. This verse is often taken out of context. You've heard the context. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. He that endures to the end shall be saved. Not too long after Jesus said this, in the upper room discourse the night before he was crucified, he, um, he had this to say. And I can't remember where I started it. There it is right here. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Listen to that strong language. Of course, you know what the world in this context of Jesus had done. From the very first of Jesus' ministry, from the time he spoke in the synagogue at Nazareth and inaugurated his ministry, 
They sought to kill him. They plotted against him. The enemies of Christ did everything you can possibly imagine in order to stop Jesus from doing and saying whatever it is he was doing and saying. And so this is Jesus now saying, the world hates you. Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would not love you, would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you. Anybody struggling with election this morning? I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the world that I said to you, the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on the account of my name. Remember our passage said it's suffering on the behalf of the name of Christ on his account because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. Oh, there might be the problem with the world. That might be the point of contention. That might be the, the difference between the believer and the unbeliever, between the disciples in the world, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. It may be this matter of sin. One kingdom is in a rebellious state, in a hostile state toward God. One kingdom is made up of people who've bowed their knee to the King of kings and the Lord of the lords. But now they have not, except for their sin, Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. It's interesting that every time a poor old gospel preacher stands to preach and talks about the importance of sin, most people don't take him as seriously as they ought to. That's really the whole issue with the whole thing. The whole creation was good, it was wonderful, and then came sin. And that's made all the difference. Why are there wars? Why is it so terrible? God's not a good God. He lets all this terrible stuff happen. Look at all the atrocity. Look at all the famine. Look at the wars. Look at all the rape and robbing and stealing and murder and everything you think of. God didn't do that. Sinful man did it. And the record is in the scriptures from the very first from chapter 4 of Genesis forward, we hear about Cain and Abel. We hear about a citizen of the world, Cain, and a citizen of God's kingdom, bringing the proper sacrifice, getting right with God, living according to God's standard, Abel. And then the story just continues. It's enlarged. It goes through a massive amount of time and a massive amount of humanity. But it's the same old problem. It's sin. And that's the struggle that is in the world. That's the struggle that's in our hearts, isn't it? What do you do with sin? Do you confess your sin? Do you abandon your sin? Do you hate your sin? Or do you just try to manage your sin? See if you can manage it so that it doesn't cause you so much trouble. Something you can live with. Something you can sort of get by with. Sin. 
But the word that is written in the law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. That's the, the gist of what's going on here with this sinful world hating Christ, persecuting him and his people, and persecuting them. It's derivative. We are persecuted because we're Christ's. We belong to him. We're Christ-like. We want to be his. We surrender to him. We love him. We worship him. We've staked everything on him. We've identified with him, and we have been born of his spirit. And there's an enmity, and that persecution goes through. Now, notice, this is a quotation, by the way. It's interesting, it says, as it was written in their law, which, of course, it was, but it is most beautifully set forth in the Psalms. And this psalm, there's, this psalm is quoted in this passage. There's two psalms that has this direct quotation, and there's a little context to it that you need to see. First one's Psalm 37. Fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Do not be envious of wrongdoers. Trust in the Lord and do good and dwell in the land and befriend the faithful people. And then the psalm that says, Do not let those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes. Let not those who wink the eye. Can you see the surreptitious, ignominious actions of the betraying Judas? The wink of the eye. Let not those wink the eye who hate me without a cause. For they do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. It is lying. It is the truth that they can't face. That's where it comes from. Then there's another Psalm, Psalm 69, just a few, chapter, a few uh, chapters over. This is talking about those that are, that are persecuting as well. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without a cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. There is the harm. There's the difficulty. It's a matter of truth. Christians seek above all else to speak the truth. And when the truth is not countenanced, when the truth is not heard, when the truth is not understood, when the truth is not championed in all areas, whether it's education or law or in family life or in business life, then you have the complete breakdown in enmity that comes from that sinful, sinful act. And it works its way into all the conversation, works its way into all the lifestyle, works its way into the heart, forms the character. People become perverse, lying. The summation statement in the scriptures one place is all men are liars. This is what brings about the persecution. It's a cliche to say it, but we're just not on the same page with the unbelievers. 
We just don't have the same worldview. We don't have the same outlook. And while it might be a mild disagreement in some areas, it becomes dreadfully serious at others. The world does not want to hear the word of the Lord. That was the cry of one of the persecuted prophets. Scripture mentions the prophets that were persecuted. One of them was Jeremiah. Jeremiah was persecuted throughout his whole life. He was made fun of. They tried to shut him up. They put him in a dungeon. They tried to make him sign a non-disclosure agreement to where he wouldn't tell anything that the Lord had said to him. Thus said the Lord to Jeremiah, well, don't tell us. Just keep it to yourself. They exiled him. They did everything you could possibly imagine. Do you remember what was in Jeremiah's uh, psychological makeup? He wanted to quit the ministry, quit preaching, quit telling the words of the Lord to a population that didn't want to hear it. He said, I'm just going to buy me a piece of property and set up a bed and breakfast and run it. And believe me, I've been there. There's a lot more peace in running a small business than there is than preaching the gospel. Preaching the gospel faithfully and boldly, for sure. But he said, I could not be still. There was within me fire in my bones, and I had to speak. And how did he speak? He spoke like this. Earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. He preached to the whole planet, especially to the land, which is literally what that word means. Earth is the word land. The land is the land of God's people. Faithful preachers cannot let God's real estate, God's people, God's property, the household of faith, the temple of God, the body of Christ, the vineyard of Jehovah, we cannot let it go untended and unpruned, and unplowed, and unloved and cared for. There's just a whole different world. We live in a different world, believers. And if we don't hear the word of the Lord, and speak the word of the Lord, live the word of the Lord, love it, and promote it, and proclaim it, earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. That we're not being faithful. And the persecution comes when we open our mouth, when we try to explain to them just a few verses out of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's four controversial statements right there. Our, our, our culture doesn't believe in a, a beginning because they don't want to believe in an end. They don't believe in a puton because they don't want to believe in an eschaton. A first day because they know there's a last day. If there's something outside and beyond our created time, space, universe, they've got some rethinking to do. Best way to ignore the last day is to deny the first day. So they deny creation. In the beginning, God. There's no God. Atheism is the rampant thought in our land today. Not just actual atheism and agnosticism, but practical atheism. 
Even people that claim there might be, might be a God completely ignore everything he is all about and everything he says. It's a practical atheism, and that's where most of us live. God created the heavens and the earth and everything that is in it. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. They don't want to believe that. They think they're the ones that's in control of the fullness of the earth. We have some environmental scientists that are telling us they're the ones that are in control of the earth. God created the earth for his purposes. The earth will be here just as long as God wants it to be here. You don't have to worry about saving the planet. If you're saved the planet in one century, I've got a Bible here that tells me something's going to happen to it in a, in a, in a, a time beyond that. Can't save the planet if you want to. God's got a definite thing in mind that he's doing. He's sovereign over every bit of that. And he's doing it. So let's get involved with God's purposes. Not with those that don't believe in God. He said, let us make man in our own image. Male and female. Created he them. Do you believe that's debatable? It's not debatable. They've already decided it in, in favor of something else. And those of us that believe that simple verse of Scripture as reality of humanity and, and existence upon this planet of the population, all of us, we, we believe that simple proposition, male and female created he them. We're the ones that are being hushed, shut up, ruled out of court, losing jobs. Persecution is coming and it's going to come because of the simple words of Scripture that we espouse and that our, that our world in which we live does not believe in. And are hostile to. And they may not be able to shut the voice of God up. But they can shut your voice up. All the way. Now just one word as a practical matter here. Before I give it to Tommy for our communion. And I, I meant to mention this earlier. But I just forgot to. Um, I'm just going to read a passage out of Peter. As I conclude. Out of First, first Peter chapter 4. And it sort of summarizes, I think, what the Lord is saying. But one of the interesting things is here, it, it talks about make sure when you suffer and when you're persecuted that it's for righteousness' sake. Not because you're obnoxious. Not because you've got a political cause. Not because you've got some weird theological idea. Not because of any other reason than when you do suffer, when people revile and rebuke you and um, say things about you. Make sure it's because it's something that you've said or done that reflects brilliantly like a mirror in the bright sunshine, the likeness of Christ. And then you're persecuted there. But if you suffer for that, listen to what, how Peter says as I close. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice. Remember our text says rejoice and be glad for your reward is in heaven. By the way, that's the greatest promise. Is you, it's, it's got a reward in heaven. You know what the greatest thing about that is? Think about the implications. It means you're going to heaven. You're going to go to heaven to get it. That's your hope. That's the best news I've heard in the whole thing. And that's what Peter here tells the whole thing. Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. And that's Peter's paraphrasing that beatitude, by the way. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 
But let, here it is. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler, as a busybody. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Tommy. Tommy.